0: Welcome to PMA Takes on Tech, the podcast that explores the problems, solutions, people and ideas that are shaping the future of the produce industry. I'm your host, Bonnie Estes, Vice President of Technology for the Produce Marketing Association, and I've spent years in the ag tech sector. So I can attest, it's hard to navigate this ever-changing world in developing and adopting new solutions to industry problems. Thanks for joining us and for allowing us to serve as your guide to the new world of produce and technology. My goal of the podcast is to outline a problem in the produce industry and then discuss several possible solutions that can be deployed today. Special thanks to PMA member CropTrack for their sponsorship of this season of PMA Takes on Tech. CropTrack's cloud platform helps companies bring their supply chain to new levels, enabling real time visibility throughout the organization. One technology platform for the entire raw supply chain. Go to croptrack.com backslash PMA to track what matters today and into the future. Today, we have a very special guest, Jack Bobo. He's a food futurist and author of the new fascinating book, Why Smart People Make Bad Food Choices. Jack has the exact background you would want and expect in a food futurist, 13 years at the U.S. Department of State, which I think is where we met. Um, I think we met there around 2014 when I was working in some biotech um, issues. Um, So he's steeped in global food policy, and then he spent close to four years at Intrexon, so he's steeped in commercialization of new technologies and what that role can bring. He sits on a number of boards along with his current company and does a ton of speaking and wrote the book. So uh, you're a very busy guy. Welcome to the podcast.
1: I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for having me on.
0: Um, So why don't you tell us uh, a little bit about what you're doing now and the type of clients you work with and kind of the value that you bring to the conversations with the companies that you're working with?
1: Sure. So I started my consulting firm uh, about two and a half years ago. Futurity sounds like a made up word, but it's not. Uh, (laughs) And I thought that I'd spend a lot of time talking about communication and policy and regulation, things that I'd worked on for a long time. But what I really ran into is that a lot of organizations, a lot of companies, there's a lot of angst out there about what the future of food is and how businesses and products and brands fit into that future. And so I, I think I ended up doing a lot of therapy. <laughs> and, you know, that's sort of, sort of the, the futurist aspect of it came in, because it's trying to help organizations to think about, you know, what is the future they want, not just the future they're going to get. Mm. And so, you know, I tell people that, um, yeah, I work with food tech startups, big food brands, helping them understand what does the future of food look like, where are consumer trends and attitudes going, and how do organizations get ahead of trends so they don't get run over by them. And it's really about trying to look around corners, to look at the trends that other people are talking about, but to then think about, well, what are the forces that are shaping those trends? Because that's how you get ahead of them. You figure out where it's going, and then you position yourself there. And so that's been a lot of fun working with, you know, all different parts of the, the food industry in order to think about how do we create a sustainable and nutritious future for all.
0: So when you engage with your different kinds of clients, like who who is the person that says we need to talk to that guy? Because yeah. um, that that's someone who is very uh, future focused and thinking about how do we get ahead? And, and I imagine that's not, you know it's not just any person in the organization. Does it tend to be the CEOs or, or what What type of people call you up and say, you need to come in and talk to my team?
1: Yeah, so with the larger food companies, it's a lot of the executives. You know, I, I as you mentioned, I spent 13 years at the State Department. And at the time, I used to say that, Big companies are a lot like children. They only call when there's a problem. <laughs> and <laughs> I had the opportunity to work with lots of companies to try to solve their problems. So I, I have you a know, pretty enormous network of uh, yeah. you know, organizations and people that have risen to the top of the organizations that they now work for. Um, but then on the other hand, you've got a lot of these food tech companies. And sometimes I I just reach out to them. I see how they're messaging, and I think, oh my God, you know they they're, they're going to run into problems. Let me see if I can fix that. And Fortunately, I also have a network who can make introductions and that happen. Uh, but often I get calls from venture capitalists who have companies in their portfolio and they're like, could you please talk to the CEO of this new startup and you know, keep help them to communicate in a way that doesn't antagonize sort of the traditional agriculture industry uh, while being true and authentic uh, to who they are.
0: That's so great. We'll, we'll dig into that a little bit more in a minute, but, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about your book. So what, um, what made you decide to write it? How long did it take and, uh, how's it being received?
1: So, uh, the book, why smart people make bad food choices. And it's not what I think about bad food choices. It's, you know, to help people who've feel like they themselves are not making the choices that they want to be making for themselves. Um, So I'm not sort of passing judgment on other people. I'm not a dietitian, you know, I'm not a doctor. It's about helping people to make the decisions that they want to make for their own health. And I spent about a year working on it. The the first six months I actually was writing a series of blog posts and those 10 initial posts are still up on my website, Mm, looking at consumer psychology And I was really interested in like how the ways that our brains sometimes lead us to make bad choices and to help, you know, people recognize that. And then as I decided to turn it into a book, I realized that sort of the first third is the mind leading us astray, but then there's also our food environment that is also leading us to make these bad choices. And then the last part of the book is, well, what would it take to redesign our food environment so healthy outcomes were the default? And one of the things that really struck me when I started the project was, how can it be at a time when we've never known more about health and nutrition in the history of the planet, and we've never been more obese? We've never had more healthy food choices and options in a grocery store, and yet we've never been more obese. So it's not as if people in 1960 had, you know, greater willpower than we have today. I mean, they were cooking with Crisco. It's like, need more lard? Yeah, let's pour it on there. (laughs) And yet somehow very few people were obese in 1960. 42% of Americans are obese today. 75% are overweight or obese. And we're going to 50% by 2030. So just in another decade. So if we don't really seriously change the direction of society you know we're going to be entering a period in which every generation lives less you know doesn't live as long as the generation before and you know that's never been the case and so you know we're so that's that's what the book is hoping to tackle is helping us to think about that foodscape in a way that's very different than how a diet book would approach the problem.
0: So I know you, it took a whole book to explain all this, but um, give some examples or just some things that, that were surprising to you as far as like, what, what are those changes? Why is it different now than 1960? What, what kind of happened in the evolution of how we interact with our food?
1: So, you know, I have one chapter on decision fatigue or um, mental fatigue, and, you know, we're all familiar with the idea that you shouldn't go grocery shopping when mm-hmm. you're tired. And that's because when you're mentally tired, you just don't make as good a choice. Um, And when you have to make more choices in a row, the choice, the ability to make good choices gets worse and worse. And so is there any place in our environment in which we have to make more choices than in a grocery store?
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And so you ask, what's changed? Well, you know, there are tens of thousands more products in a grocery store today than there were in 1980. So if you think about it, you know, in 1980, you went to the grocery store and you had two choices for a pasta sauce. You could get prego or ragu or ragu and prego, and that was it. But a decade later, you had chunky and spicy and meat sauce and, you know- Some not are low-fat
0: and some are high this and low that. And yeah.
1: <laughs> right. And just dozens and dozens of choices. And it was the same with salad dressings, barbecue sauces and all these things. And having choice- improves happiness up to a point, but then it begins to actually erode happiness because then you begin to wonder whether you've made the right choice. And so what is sort of intended to make us happier and enjoy our lives more uh, can have negative consequences. And so then there's another chapter in the book in where which I talk about something called the Halo effect, which is just when a product has one positive attribute, we just assume it has more. And you know this is actually with the plant-based, you know, burger movement that uh-huh. 95% of people are buying them because they think it's healthier when of course, you know, they're no more nutritious and in some respects less nutritious than a, you know, conventional burger. Now, the people producing it are doing it primarily for ethical and environmental reasons, but there's a mismatch between why people are buying it and what it's delivering. And so the halo effect really arose again back in the 19 early 1980s when the dietary guidelines first came along and one of the things that they recommended was lower fat diets well that makes a lot of sense you know heart disease was a you know big contributor to illness and food companies did what we would want them to do they started offering low low fat options you know for the products they normally produce but then the halo effect kicked in and people thought well if one low fat cookie is good for me, an entire bag must be great. Well, low fat and low calorie are not the same thing at all. Exactly. And so all of these things that were sort of intended to allow us to sort of lead a healthier life in many respects have actually moved us in the other direction. And then that's the psychology of it. But then there there are a lot of examples in the book of the environment. You know, we're all familiar with, um, you know, supersized portions today. But what most of us don't realizes that it all leads back to the mad genius of one man back in the 1960s, uh, David Wallerstein. Mm. And he was working for a chain of uh, movie theaters. And his job was to figure out how to get people to eat more popcorn. And so he (laughs) tried two for one deals and all sorts of things to get them to come back. And people just would not go back and buy a second bag of popcorn. And all of a sudden it hit him. Well, what if the reason they don't want more popcorn is they're embarrassed? You know, people might think I'm gluttonous if I go and have two bags of popcorn. And so it hit him, well, what if I offered a a bigger bag? And up until that point, food companies never offered larger portions because they saw it as a a way of discounting, and they thought Uh it undermined their brand value by doing it. So there was a reason they didn't do it. But of course, you know, then the rest is history. Once he did it, soft drink sales took off everything in the concession stand grew well he went to work for mcdonald's and uh. he convinced ray Kroc that they needed to offer larger sizes than mcdonald's which also took ray Kroc a long time to uh acknowledge because he's like they'll go back for a second bag well that's just not true and it wasn't until 1972 that they finally introduced the large uh, mcdonald's fry and you know that really began to you know to steamroll all of this but there are stories in the book about those sorts of things uh, most of us today don't even know what an adult serving of food looks like, because if you were to buy a Happy Meal, well, a small kids' fry is a large fry from
0: 1972.
1: Oh, wow. A 12-ounce soda, well, that's 50% larger than the seven or eight-ounce soda you would have gotten as an adult in 1955. And so and the burger is bigger as well. So we don't even... You know, it's just not even our conception, what an adult serving used to be. And, you know, that's part of the challenge is that we don't even know how much we're supposed to eat or what would be normal because we eat our food so quickly that our body doesn't have an opportunity to let us know that it's full. And so every meal we're eating 20 or 30% more calories than we actually need in order to satisfy us. And so you do that every day for 30 years and that's when you get where we are.
0: That's exactly right. And I remember one thing you said in the book was talking about the plate size at a restaurant. So it, they're get they're putting, you know, these more food on a larger plate. So it doesn't, if you put that on a regular dinner plate, you would think, oh my gosh, that's so much more than I would eat at home. But if you put it on a big plate, then it's it's fine.
1: Yeah. Right. And we reward restaurants
0: though that give us lots of food. You know, it's yeah. like it
1: seems like good value. But if you're yeah. less ha- happy, less healthy, and less wealthy, maybe it's not such a great deal
0: exactly i was reading an article um last year or so and I, I think it was put out by someone at google and google's done you know a lot of work on trying to figure out how to get their workforce to eat healthier because they want to keep them there for three meals a day <laughs> i mean that's that's right. behind their madness but but they do want to keep them and they see the value of keeping them healthy insurance premiums and that sort of thing but one of the things that they were talking about was kind of the psychology around meeting foods at meetings and and mm-hmm. i've always complained about this because'm I'm, I'm not Um, I would much rather eat fruit and vegetables than eat a donut. Um, but if I'm so fatigued in a meeting and there's a break and there's a big chocolate chip cookie, that's like, you know, two inches away from my hand, I'm, I'm probably going to eat it, you know, where I would never eat that normally. So they were talking about different ways of like setting the snacks outside the room or having healthier snacks, or how, how have you seen some of the people that are trying to figure out how do we, how do we change this behavior in people?
1: Yeah. And there's an entire chapter in the book about the work that Google's doing. So I I talked to Michael Bocker, who led that initiative, and Siobhan uh, Hansen, who, who's now running it right now. And they uh, we don't think of Google when we're talking about food normally, but what they've done is they've crunched the data on the 200,000 people they were feeding one two or three meals a day before covid came along, came along and you know they did what they did best they crunched all that data and then they used it to figure out what could they do in order to nudge people to healthier food choices and and there are a lot of things that can be done you um one of the things they did was they took the sodas which were free and but they put them behind frosted glass in a lower refrigerator so it wasn't as easily accessible they took the snack station and they moved it just a little bit further away from the coffee station because what people were doing was they were getting a cup of coffee and while it was brewing they would just you know go Three or four feet away and grab a snack. Well, you put it fifteen feet away and all of a sudden you get a sixty percent reduction in snacking because you know nobody wants to leave their drink. They just yeah, you know, if they can. And so you know, redesigning the the buffet lines and changing the names of the servings and working with the Culinary Institute of America to design new recipes for vegetables to make them amazing so that people wanted to eat uh, the healthier food. So there's a lot that. That company did. Um, Compass Group is the company that um, does the food service for them. And they partnered with them. And so Compass Group then takes the ideas that are being generated at Google, and they're taking it to the hospitals and um, cafeteria, corporate cafeterias and schools and other things where they operate. So a lot of those ideas are being widely distributed. Um, There's work that's happening in the UK where the grocery retailers are redesigning the layout of the grocery store in order to nudge more fruit and vegetable purchases. I think they've gotten like 16% increases over the course of a year just by redesigning the layout of the shopping experience. And so consumers don't even know that those things are happening. You know, they just end up with more fruits and vegetables in their basket. And, you know, they would have no way of being able to explain why they bought it. They would just say, oh, I just felt like it. Well, you felt like it because you were kind of nudged along the way, you know, as you went through the aisles today.
0: Interesting. Interesting. So this um, podcast, I focus a lot on technology. So, um, how can um, technology help us develop better foods and help people make um, healthier choices? I mean, you kind of have a background in biotech, and so what what kinds of things do you think could happen that that will help us have a healthier um, healthier people?
1: Yeah, I mean, technology and innovation are playing a role at every step of the process. Uh, You know, so they're helping. Us to, to tweak, make them healthier, but they're also allowing us to use data and information ways uh, that allow consumers to make more informed choices, to have better information. Um, often, information, of course, doesn't lead to better outcomes uh, because you know we often don't look for information that's going to help us. You know, if you put low fat or you put low sodium on a can of soup, people enjoy it less even if huh. a blind taste test it tastes exactly the same as the regular one once you add the you know low sodium people will actually respond and, and appreciate it less huh
0: so, they think something's been taken away from them
1: yeah and so yeah. you know it's and if you were to do brain scans i mean they there'd actually be less enjoyment of that experience so it's not that they're just telling you that they didn't like it they actually experience it as less tasty huh and so that's why some companies are going to stealth health where they're tweaking the recipes in order to make them healthier but they're not actually advertising it. And you know I think you know that's working with psychology. And I think when it comes to innovations you need to figure out when can you lean into the technology and people love it like their smartphone and when do you not focus on the technology and let it sort of fall into the background and you know my standard quote is people love innovation almost as much as they despise change and (laughs) there's no place people despise change more though and then the food they eat because food is what brings us together with friends and family and if you mess with my food you're messing with my family and people just don't like that but if we don't change how we produce food everything will change so and consumers just don't know how much innovation was already there right We produce twice as much food as we did in 1960 on more or less the same amount of land. And without innovation, we would have had to cut down a billion hectares of forest. And, you know, that's just huge, would have a huge environmental impact. I mean, that's more than a quarter of all the forest left on the planet. And so innovation has played a critical role, but it often goes unnoticed. And one of the things that I find interesting is that consumers are much more accepting of innovation from startups than they are from big food companies. And so you see this all the time that, you know, innovations, you know, seem like they're only coming from the startups, but a lot of it's because that's where consumers want it to come from. And that goes to a lot of consumer psychology as well.
0: Yeah, I think that's really fascinating. How do we balance the, you know, you were saying consumers don't really know and they just want better products. And we certainly, you know, consumers don't buy technology, they buy products, but how do we kind of balance that with transparency? So if, you know, uh, you and I both worked around GMO some, and, but, but if you look at some of the newer technologies like gene editing or epigenetics or some of the non-GMO breeding, new breeding technologies, um, Do consumers want to know? Do they not want to know? How do we talk about it? How do we bring on new products? Kind of what do you see happening there?
1: Yeah. So one thing you want to do is you want to be transparent before anybody's asking for transparency. So if you're responding to a request, you've already lost. Uh. And uh, McDonald's learned this lesson when some of the communication and marketing people were pushing the company in order to put all of their ingredient lists on the website. And they finally caved and they said, fine, we'll put it all on there. And they did. And nobody visited the website. And it was there. <laughs> and the executives were like, what's going on? We spent all this time and money and energy doing this and nobody cares. And the marketing guys were like, yes, that's the point. That people actually responded as in surveys as being much more comfortable knowing the information was there, even though they never actually checked it out. And so, you know, transparency, you know, should be something that's sort of part of our everyday experience. And when it works well, it's totally irrelevant. And, you know, think about transparency and where we are today. Like people do care about transparency, but eventually transparency becomes the norm in the same way a hundred years ago people cared about food safety because food was not safe. But today, food safety is the floor everybody must be safe. So it's not, you can't say, oh, I'm safe for the next guy and get business. Um, today, transparency is a ceiling that we aspire to, but 10 years from now, it'll be the floor. So as an organization, you can get credit today by being more transparent than the next guy. 10 years from now, you will be punished if you were less transparent than the next guy. And so, uh, you know, I would encourage organizations that if you can be transparent enough, sometimes those things that you feel like the real problems uh, can just disappear.
0: Yeah, one of the things that I've been working with some just within the organization is around gene editing and, and so many companies not wanting to be the first because they're afraid that the, that people will go after them. And so the, the technology is not getting used and a lot of new breeding technologies aren't getting used because they're afraid to be transparent, but then they're afraid to not be transparent. And so I think it's a I, I think we need that. You know, as we said, we need that product that people just love. And then, you know, it's you tell them how it was made, and they're like, "Great, I love it. That's what I'm going to eat." You know, so I think it's hard to get there.
1: Well, but think about you know what would have happened if the Impossible Burger, which is a GMO burger, had been created by Monsanto. <laughs>
0: I mean, I shudder to think. <laughs> well, I think we
1: know that it wouldn't have been successful,
0: yeah.
1: uh, but every newspaper article in the world would have said it, it failed because nobody wants a GMO burger. Yeah, so that's actually not true. But everybody would have assumed the failure was on the product of the technology instead of the fact that nobody wants a GMO burger from a large multinational company, whereas almost nobody cared that Impossible Burger was you know made with GMOs. And even though you know, many organizations did you know highlight that fact, because at first, it was only offered in high-end restaurants. And so rich people were perfectly happy to pay $20 a burger in order to have this GMO ultra-processed product. Now, the big pushback came when it went into 18,000 Burger Kings, and all of a sudden, poor people could afford it. And so you know, there's that socioeconomic change. that So when people
0: who had money were fine as long as it was special. I mean, why were they yeah. willing to pay for it? Okay.
1: Right. It was unique. It was exclusive. And, you know, we do this all the time with, um, you know, in society, you know, artisanal is just another word for saying something is poorly produced. <laughs> <laughs> you know, back in the early 1900s, people wanted glasses that were made in uh, factories, because they didn't have bubbles and imperfections. Today, we pay people to put imperfections into our products, uh, because it's more expensive to do it that way now. Yeah. And so Just understanding that psychology. So it's not just what product comes to market, but it's who brings it to market as well.
0: Yeah, I think that's really true. I've heard you talk about sustainability. I wanted to touch on that a little bit and how that um, just the whole area of sustainability is is choices and consequences. So it's not good and bad, it's choices and consequences and being aware of what those are. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that and what consumers think and and, and how we should kind of think about it in terms of policy and, and how agriculture works? <laughs>
1: sure i mean too often when i hear people talking about sustainability that they want to know well how do we define sustainability and that implies that there is a sustainable agriculture out there that you know if we could define it then we could describe it but sustainability is not a destination it's a journey so we will never get to sustainable agriculture because agriculture today is wildly more sustainable than ag was 30 years ago mm-hmm. and it's wildly more sustainable it will be wildly more sustainable 30 years from now than it is today and so you know we shouldn't talk about it in those terms as if somebody's achieving it and we need to change part of the conversation from telling farmers what they should do and instead talking to them about what they could do you know because nobody likes to be told what to do and it's also suggesting to them that they're doing something wrong and yet they're so much wildly more productive and sustainable than you know they were 20 or 30 years ago. So you're not giving them any credit for where they've gotten to, you're just blaming them for where they're going to be. And so how we talk about this is really important. You know, Are farmers the problem to be solved or the solution to the problem? And so we get into some of this problem with sustainability because really consumers think of sustainability in terms of what I would call local sustainability that if we can reduce the amount of fertilizer insecticide and pesticide, water, and all of those inputs, then we have less of a local impact. And mm. that's what they think sustainable looks like, You know, using fewer resources to produce food. But for many organizations, large multinational agribusinesses, they think in terms of sustainable intensification, the more food I can squeeze out of a piece of land, the better it is because we don't have to cut down forest in Brazil and Indonesia and other places to do it. Mm -hmm. But you know, the reality is that when you intensively farm, there will generally be more um, impact locally. So uh, global sustainability, which is what I'm describing here has a higher local impact, but a lower global impact and local sustainability has a lower local impact, but it has a higher global impact. And the U.S. and the EU are sort of moving down the diff- these two different paths. You know, the U.S., uh, I was on a webinar this morning with uh, Dr. Uh, Javonda Jacobs-Young, the administrator of the Agricultural Research Service, and you know, she was talking about, you know, the importance of sustainable intensification. Um, but that's something that the U.S. is focused on. In Europe, the farm to fork strategy is very much about, you know, they want to be 25% of land to be organic by 2030. They want to cut in half um, fertilizer use, cut by 20% pesticides. Well, if they do that, they will produce less food.
0: So they will have to import? I mean, like, what is, how does that play out? Yeah. Right. So
1: they would have to import more food. And the country that sends the most food to Europe today is Brazil. Mm-hmm. In many ways, Europe has exported its environmental footprint to arguably the most biodiverse country on the planet. Mm.
0: You
1: know, it takes a landmass the size of the agricultural land of Germany to produce the soybeans for Europe. So, I mean, think about it. there's an entire Germany somewhere in the rainforest of Brazil sending soybeans back to Europe, so they don't have to produce them themselves. And so it's a choice and a consequence. Europe is protecting the environment in Europe and that's why forests are expanding in Europe. Um, but it's also why forests are declining in Brazil.
0: Hmm. Well, how, how do consumers deal with that dichotomy and those choices? I mean, that's too complicated when I'm standing there and deciding what product to buy in the grocery store.
1: <laughs> right. So it, it's pretty much too difficult in that moment for people to do it. So instead of trying to make the choice on a product-by-product basis, I think encouraging companies to have sustainability goals. See, it's hard to know what sustainable is, but it's easy to know if I'm more sustainable tomorrow than I am today or next Hmm. year than I am. Because if I can cut my water use next year more from where I am today, I've done a good job. If I can reduce my energy use. So companies can track whether they're making progress But it's hard to compare, you know, apples and oranges, as you guys know. Yeah. (laughs) You know, what's sustainable for a farmer in the northeastern on the Chesapeake may not be for a farmer in New Mexico. So, you know, reducing water use doesn't matter if I'm on the Chesapeake because it's all rain fed, but it really matters if I'm in New Mexico. Mm -hmm. producing fertilizer doesn't really matter in new mexico because you know that's not the limiting factor but sure does matter if i'm trying to avoid eutrophication of waterways in the chesapeake so you know you can't even talk about the concept of sustainability and compare those two producers because the challenges they face what makes them a good farmer are just not the same measures at all
0: yeah very true well, I'm going to get try to get some free advice from you now. Um, so, at the Produce Marketing Association, you know, we really want um, to have fruits and vegetables be a big part of the plate, and we really want to be the the real plant based diet um, with whole foods. What kinds of things can an you know maybe not our association, but any association like what can be done um, to kind of move this conversation forward around sustainability and and uh, and healthier diets?
1: Yeah, so I think that the the produce association and, and its members and the the products they produce are very well positioned, you know, going forward. That while 2019 in some ways was the year of the plant based burger, you know, because the the IPO from Beyond, uh, the biggest diet trend was Whole Foods. And so again, consumers are inconsistent. On one hand, ultra processed food is one of the two biggest trends, and Whole Foods is the other biggest trend. Uh, but I think that if you look at dietary guidelines around the world, they are all calling for less ultra-processed foods and more whole foods. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think that you've got that opportunity. Uh, when you think about uh, consumers, you know, most consumers know they should be eating four or five servings of fruits and vegetables a day. 90% are not doing that. There's an opportunity there when most people know they're not doing something and they kind of want to do it. That's where, you know, the point of my book is how do we reshape our food environment to allow people to do the things they really actually want to do? It's not about convincing people to do something they don't want. um, And it's not about forcing, you know, through taxes and policy interventions and other things. But, you know, just one example would be with you may be familiar with the um, double bucks program that the uh, SNAP has, the Supp- mm-hmm. Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, where if you go to a farmers market, you get twice the money for your your food. So if you spend ten dollars in SNAP funds, you could buy twenty dollars of produce uh, at the farmers market, and that seems like a great way of encouraging people to eat fresh foods. The problem is it also costs twice as much to mm-hmm. buy food at the farmers market. So they the consumers are actually getting the same volume of food. They would have at the grocery store um, but our you know the snap programs actually spending twice as much to get half as much food um, but what they could be doing instead is just offering double bucks when consumers buy fruits and vegetables so anywhere you know, yeah yeah because why shouldn't i be rewarded as a consumer if i buy frozen and buy twice as much you know for that same money instead of going to the farmer's market and buying half as much now I'm fine if they want to go to the farmer's market. People should you know, be flexible in what they do. And so there, there's a lot that one can do based on dietary uh, needs that we have, consumer actual desires, um, convenience. How do we make all of those things interesting to consumers um, so that they're not sort of look, looking to avoid them? How do we convey that information in a way that reaches the right people at the right time with the right message?
0: So it sounds like it's a mix of uh, policy and psychology, and availability and products, and all these uh, all these complicated things. But do you think we're we're headed in a in a better direction? And some of the things that you've seen over writing the book, and and some of the you know companies like Google and the different companies that of your clients that are really thinking about this. Do are you optimistic?
1: So. I'm optimistic that more and more behavioral approaches are gonna be applied. I'm convinced that that's gonna be the case. We gotta figure out ways of scaling these interventions. Um, we need to find ways of making it easier for communities to, to get the information they need in order to help uh, consumers make the choices they want. But in terms of innovation, you know, I'm very optimistic. I, I have no doubt that science and technology can help us solve the problems that we have. The question is Will we be allowed to use those tools? You know, I'm sort of a regulatory pessimist and a science optimist. And, you know, we need to be able to communicate it in a way that consumers get on board with it because science tells us what we can do, but it's the consumer who tells us what we should do. Mm -hmm. And if the consumer doesn't understand that one choice is not going to get them where they need to be, then maybe they can begin to think a little bit more deeply. It's like, they're, because they're choosing local sustainability because they want to help the planet. And if they can appreciate that nuance a little more, and if they trusted the companies were trying to be better, then they might give them the flexibility to achieve that sustainability goal in the way they think is best.
0: This fascinating interview with Jack wraps up the season of PMA Takes on Tech. A special shout out to the CropTrack team and Jennifer Goldstein from AgTech PR for sponsorship and helping with this season in many ways. Next season will start up in October, November, focused on controlled environment ag. See you then. That's it for this episode of PMA Takes on Tech. Thanks for allowing us to serve as your guide to the new world of produce and technology. Be sure to check out all our episodes at pma.com and wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe and I would love to get any comments or suggestions of what you might want me to take on. For now, stay safe, eat your fruits and vegetables and we will see you next time.